Welcome. Anybody I don't know uh, that's here today, I want to make sure I meet you before you go. Uh, so don't, don't sneak away, all right? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we magnify your name. We are so thankful that you've given us a word that we can go to to better understand the, the, the nature of our salvation and its implications in our life. Uh, Lord, we need to know how to follow you because if we were just left to kind of figure it out on our own, on our own we'd be right back to wandering, which is the place that we came from. And, and so, God, you've given us a guide and you've set for us a lamppost and you've given us a point to, 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 to head towards and endeavor towards. And, um, Lord, that's the, the, the truth and the prophetic nature of your word that we can that we can look at and we can see how to progress and move forward. And so, God, show us how to do that. A lot of us in this room are just learning what it means to know how to study your book and to, to be able to compare Scripture with Scripture and to see the Bible for what it truly is. Uh, incredibly deep uh, so that we can't, we can't swim its depths, um, but yet also just a simple, a simple thing that we can swim about in and enjoy in fellowship. And so, God, I just ask that this time would be sweet and that Eric's words would be pointed where they need to be pointed, that they'd be encouraging, and that they'd be challenging. Would you use him? Would you give him, give him greater faith because he got to preach today and to speak of your word? We love you, and we thank you for this time. Keep us awake. Keep us focused. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Am I on? Okay. Praise the Lord, saints. How y'all doing? Oh, come on now. Praise the Lord, saints. Amen. It's good to see you. All right. Open your Bibles to Romans 4. Um, so, what you see in Romans 1 through 3, just as a review, Paul has been really laying out sort of a, um, a le- from a legal perspective, how we are justified by faith. Uh, he's been laying it out from a legal perspective, and, and 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also hath suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. And so what Paul shows us in chapters 1 through 3 is that whether you're Jew or Gentile, we all have a problem called sin. We all have a problem called sin. And despite what you might think are the advantages of being Jew or Gentile, okay, God has given everyone enough revelation so that we're all guilty before God. Whether Jew or Gentile, we're all guilty before God. Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatsoever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. And over in Galatians 3.24 it says, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. Galatians 3.25, but after faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. So, schoolmaster. so, so Paul has established this. And then in Romans 3.23, Paul gives us an immutable fact. Immutable fact. No alternative facts allowed. Immutable facts. If y'all been in the media, you, you would know what that means. Okay, so no alternative facts allowed. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All, that's everyone, Jew, Gentile. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so this is the way Matthew Henry put it. Concerning the business of justification, and by 
just as a reminder, we define justification. Brandon defined justification as being righteous in God's eyes. How do you obtain righteousness? That's justification, being righteous in God's eyes. So concerning the business of justification, the Jews and the Gentiles stand upon the same level. The Jews and the Gentiles stand upon the same level. Jews and Gentiles all are in need of saving. Now, this is what I love. I have to tell you what I love about chapter 4, okay? Paul is very good at anticipating objections. He's very good at anticipating objections. Now, I know, you know, Paul wrote one-third of your New Testament, and he had all these theological accomplishments that were awesome, but I just want to tell you, Paul would have had a phenomenal career in sales. (laughs) He would have. He would have had a wonderful career in sales because, you know, there's several ingredients that you need in sales in order to be successful. One key ingredient is the capacity to anticipate the objection of your potential buyer. And if you can anticipate that objection, then you can prepare to respond to it. Now, some of you don't know my story, but I'm a sales manager. Uh, I'm an inside sales manager, so I work for ADT. So I manage inside sales reps. One of the most common objections that they will get on the phone when you call someone is, I'm too busy right now. Can you call me later? Well, if you know anything about sales, you know they'll never pick up the phone again, right? So it's, it's, it's now or never. And so one of the things that we teach people to do is, okay, since you know that that is a common objection, you can't be afraid of it. you got to bring it up. So it goes a little like this. Hey, Michael, it's Eric with ADT. Uh, did I catch you at a good time? I'm bringing it up. Did I catch you at a good time? Of course, Michael's going to say, oh, well, no, now's not a good time. Can you call me back later? I'm super busy. Yeah, I'm busy too, but um, <laughs> yeah, I- I'm busy too, but I'll be brief. And you're done. You acknowledge that we're both busy. I'm going to be brief. And you're done. And then you just move right into your process. And if you're a good salesperson, that a few moments later, you're collecting a credit card number, three-digit code on the back, and your technician will be there tomorrow at 8 a.m. But you've got to bring it up yourself. And so what Paul is doing in, in Romans chapter 4, he's already laid out from a legal process, from a legal perspective, justification by faith. But he's going to use an illustration in Romans chapter 4. In anticipation of a common objection. In anticipation of a common objection. So what's the objection? Well, he, he's, he's thinking like the, the Jews would think. Well, Abraham did good works and he was justified. Abraham did good works and he was justified. And so Paul starts Romans chapter 4. Let's go to Romans chapter 4. And I love the way he starts it off. What shall we say then that Abraham our father... As pertaining to the flesh hath found. Boom. He's bringing it up. What shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found? And the reason why he chooses Abraham is because you don't have to read far in the New Testament before you come to understand that the Jews, they put a lot of stock in their lineage from Abraham. They put a lot of stock in that. Over in John chapter 8, I'm going to share some verses with you. These verses are not on the screen, so if you want to write these down, you can over in John chapter 8, verse 31, then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, if ye continue in my word, then ye are my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, we be Abraham's seed. We were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou ye shall be made free? So this, this, this response to Jesus is, hey, we're of Abraham. They're proud of this. Over in, uh, down in John 58, 51, verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. Verse 52, then said the Jews unto him, now we know that thou hast a devil. Devil, Abraham is dead and the prophets. And thou sayest, if a man keep my saying, he shall never taste of death. Verse 53, this is what they asked Jesus. Art thou greater than our father Abraham? 
which is dead and the prophets are dead, whom makest thou thyself? That's an amazing question. You're talking to the God of the universe, the God that spoke everything into existence, and you want to know if he's greater than Abraham. <laughs> and what I, what I find, now see, this is how you know these are attributes of God. Because what would you do if you had created everything and then your creation questions your authority, right? It would be like, I will smite you, right? Like, right in that moment. Um, but Abraham, their father, are you greater than Abraham, our father? They put, a lot of, they put a lot of stock in Abraham. And so Paul brings up Abraham because he knows, hey, I'm going to show you through the life of Abraham how he was justified by faith alone. He was justified by faith alone. You're going to come to this understanding even through Abraham. And if you say you are of your father Abraham, then you've got to believe what Abraham believed. So Paul's like, I got you now. I got you now. So they took great pride in their lineage from Abraham. And you know what? Who could blame them in the sense that Abraham did do great works? There were, Abraham had a resume, a long resume, right? You look over in Genesis uh, 12, 4, and you find out that he was called to go out to a strange land when he was 75 years old. What do you plan to do when you're 75 years old? Probably not leave everything and go journey in strange lands. So, you know, Abraham has that to his credit. And then you find out over in Genesis 18, 23, uh, that he prays for Lot so that God won't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's a beautiful prayer. He's basically like haggling with God. Like, hey, if there's, there's 10 righteous... Will you save this city? So this is a man of, of intercession, great intercession. And what you find out is that God honors his prayer. And then, of course, over in Genesis 22, when God calls him to sacrifice his son, and at the moment he's getting ready to do it, Genesis 22, 12, God says, uh, and he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him, for I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. So no one would dare deny that Abraham was a man of great works. I don't think anybody would deny that, but the question is, did his works justify him? Is that how he obtained righteousness from God? Through his works? Through his life? Did God look at his life and say, because you've done these things, I'm going to view you as righteous? And so let's pray one more time, and we're going to dive into this passage. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would meet with us and uh, Father, I ask that you set me aside. Uh, this is a wonderful passage, Lord, and um, I just pray that you'd speak to our hearts, Father, because there's so much here that we can learn, Lord, about living our lives through the lens of faith and just believing on you for every promise, Father, uh, not trying to earn it because we think we can, but just resting in you, Lord Jesus. And so would you speak to us through your word? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So let's look back in Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory before. He hath whereof to glory, but not before God. And so here's point number one. No one brags before God. So Paul brings up Abraham, and as great as he is, if he were justified by his works... He would actually be able to brag before God, but nobody brags before God. Not you, not me, not your mama, not your daddy, nobody, right? Nobody brags before God. And if you think that you can brag before God, if you think that because of the life that you live, you're able to brag before God, there are two critical errors that you are making. 
and I want to point those out to you this morning. Error number one, you don't understand the holiness of God. You don't understand the holiness of God. And what you find, and, and, and I think you encounter this in, in your interaction with people, uh, it doesn't take much to convince people that God is love. That's something that you hear touted often, that God is love. And I wouldn't disagree with that. The Bible declares that God is love. But what happens is people focus on this attribute of God to the exclusion of other attributes. And what happens is if all you see, if all you assume is that God is love, then your conclusions actually become perverse. Because not all love comes from God. That's why Proverbs says open, open rebuke, Proverbs 27.5, open rebuke is better than secret love. Open rebuke is better than secret love because there are some things you shouldn't love. Not all love comes from God. And so although you have this attribute of love, this, the other attribute that you have got to remember is that God is light. God is light. Yes, God is love, but God is also light. And that speaks to his holiness. That speaks to his holiness. First John 1 John 1.5, then, this then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And so I want you to think about that in the context of you walk into a dark room and you turn on the light. What happens? Darkness dissipates, right? The very nature of the light is that it deals with the darkness. Has to. It wouldn't be light if it didn't. Does that make sense? The very nature of the light is that it deals with the darkness. And the intensity of the light affects the degree to which the darkness is dispelled. So if you think about perfect light, what does that mean for darkness? What does that mean for darkness? It means that by God's nature, he has to deal with sin because sin is darkness. His holiness demands that he do it. There's no other option. He's got to do something about it. He is light. And so when you have this conversation with people and they want to say God is love, that's great. But you've also got to remember that God is light. You've got to remember that God is light and he must deal with sin. And so error number two, therefore, is that you don't understand your own sinfulness. Romans 7, 13. Was then that which is good made death unto me, God forbid, but sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. God wants sin to become exceeding sinful, so he gives you the law so that you can perceive the darkness of your sin. Your sin has got to become exceeding sinful. You've got to understand the depravity that's there. Before Christ, your nature, my nature was one of darkness. You were in darkness. I were in darkness because we were darkness. Because we were darkness. Colossians 1.12, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness. And have translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. And so what are the works of the flesh? What, what's the darkness 
What's the darkness that's in us? Go over to Galatians chapter 5 because this is important. This is going to help us to see the darkness. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. This is the darkness. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness. That word uncleanness, it's morally impure. That's what that means. Lasciviousness, that's unbridled sexual desire. Idolatry, don't forget this word. We're going to come back to it. Idolatry. Witchcraft, hatred, variance, that means debate. Emulations, that's like wicked jealousy, wrath, strife. That means contention, seditions. That means disunity, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Question, who is not on this list? Who in here is not on this list? Who in here was not on this list? I read that list and I see stuff in me. So when you understand that God is light and all the aforementioned things are darkness, what makes you think you can brag before God? Your sin is darkness. What room for bragging do we have? Now here's what the Jews missed. When God called Abraham, Abraham was an idolater. When God called Abraham, Abraham was an idolater. He worshipped idols before God called him. Now, what do you mean? What do I mean by that? Abraham was an idolater. You know, there's some people who are like, oh, that Bible doesn't say that. Just making that up. Oh, no, I'm not. Go over to Joshua. Go over to Joshua. Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24. Verse 2, it says, And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time, even Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nacor, and they served other gods. Who? Your fathers. Now you can read that and you might think, uh, But I don't know if that's really talking about Abraham. But just to make it clear, read verse 3. And I took your father Abraham from the other side. Verse 2, he said, your fathers dwelt on the other side. And he names them in verse 3, and he said, your father Abraham was on the other side. He's one of the fathers that were on the other side. And guess what? They served other gods. They served other gods. When God found Abraham, Abraham was an idolater. Now, this had to be controversial. At this point, I'm sure the Jews are a little upset with Paul. Maybe even a little bitter. Right? Because, Paul, this is kind of like a theological backhand. Like, just, just, just get in place right here. Understand this. Paul is regulated. <laughs> That's what he's doing. Uh, Abraham was not justified before God because he was a great person. He was an idolater like you and me. Like we were. And here's the ugly truth. Abraham needed saving. Abraham needed saving. 
So the conclusion of Scripture, go back over to Romans. Romans chapter 4. For what saith the scripture? Verse 3. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. God said to Abraham, I will count your faith for righteousness. And so this is point number two. God is looking for people to acknowledge their own sinfulness and believe in his gift of righteousness. Jesus. Abraham didn't deserve this. But this is what God is looking for. Luke chapter 18, verse 8. I love how Jesus puts it. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when Son of Man, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. That's what God is looking for. He's looking for faith. He's looking for people to believe. Shall he find faith? When you think about that in the context of your own life, is God going to find faith in your own life? Faith for salvation, but even beyond that, what are you trusting God for? What are you believing God for? If it's everything that you can do in your power, where's the faith? And so often we step back from stuff like that. God, I I can't do that. I don't see how that can happen. And we back away from stuff like that. But God is looking for faith. God is looking for people to, 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 to believe him for his promises and move forward. So shall he find faith on the earth? Is God going to find faith in your life? What are the areas of your life where you lack faith? I can tell you an easy way to find those areas. What are the fears in your life? Because where there's fear, there's no faith. Right? God has not given us a what? A spirit of fear. So what are you afraid of? Rejection? We learned in first service that, that that's a part of it. That is a part of it. And I can tell you how God is dealing with me. Many of you know that, um, you know, for, for a long time, you know, God's given me open doors with Middle Eastern students. Um, and, and I was, you know, would hang out with Saudis, Kuwaitis, whoever. Uh, and, and that was something that I did and, you know, I was pretty committed to it for several years. Uh, but then I encountered opposition. And um, I was, like, blacklisted. I mean, like, it was, it was amazing to watch it go from, like, me always hanging out with Saudis and Kuwaitis to me uh, being the guy that everybody avoided. Uh, and in Middle Eastern culture, they always like, that's just like one of the things is, is the hospitality of speaking to you, right? Like, even if they hate you, they're going to speak to you. They're going to say hello. Uh, and I remember the first time I got the, it, God showed me that something was going on because I saw some Kuwaiti guys and I said hello to them and they walked right past me. They wouldn't even talk to me. Um, and I'm like, what just happened? Um, and, you know, and I went on to find out that that's what it was, that they had blacklisted me um, as someone uh, to avoid because of my message. Because they're like, oh, he's a leader in his church. He's, he, he, he speaks Arabic and, you know, he's always got his Bible with him. You guys should avoid him. You should avoid him. 
Um, but what God has shown me, and so, you know, to some degree, I think it, it, was, it was obviously it had to be by design because God allowed it to happen. But in response to that, um, you know, I, I kind of distanced myself from them because it's like, well, fine, if you don't want it, then I'll go find someone else. But I'll, I'll tell you, you know, here lately where God has been dealing with me with regard to this subject is that God's like, well, how do you know what I can do if you're not even trying anymore? Right. Like, how would you know if the doors open again? There's no way to know unless you move forward, you know. Uh, and so that's one area where where, where God has been. Uh, there has been fear because who wants to deal with rejection? You know, who wants to deal? Well, nobody wants to deal with it. But you know what? If we're, if we're called to follow the Lord, then that's just a part of it. That's just a part of it. And so you've got to die to yourself and you've got to dive in and you've got to move forward in faith. And some people will receive it and others will reject it. And that, that's just the way it is. But that's, that's what has to happen. And so I'm just being transparent with you about where God is dealing with me and how I have to move forward. Um, just moving forward in faith to, to, to continue to trust the Lord for those open doors. So the question is, shall he find faith? Is God going to find faith in your life? The fears. Can you replace those with faith? God is looking for faith. So... Verse 3, for what saith the scripture, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now let's move to verse 4. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So point number 3, if you could earn salvation then that would mean that God owes you and God is a debtor to no man, right? If you could earn it, that means you would have means by which you could demand it, right? I've done this, God, now you have to do this. If you could earn salvation, that would mean that God, that God would be in a position where he would owe you something. God, you've got to let me into heaven, you owe me. Now, how would that even be possible? What Supreme Court would be able to enforce that. You know, what how would you even how would you even go about that? God is never in a position where he is a debtor to man, much less sinful man. Much less sinful man. God could never owe you or me. But you know what for so many people, even people in this room, you feel like God owes you something. And I suppose to some degree it's true, but what what the Bible says God owes you, you don't really want. Right. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. If God were to give you what he owes you, nobody's demanding that from God. Right. <laughs> God, give me what I what I deserve. Well, OK. <laughs> I demand. God can make that accommodation. But this is what the Bible says. If, if there is something that God owes you, the wages of sin. Is death. And so point four, we are in debt to God and God is never in debt to us. If God ever decided to give you and me what we truly deserve, it wouldn't be heaven. We've earned death. But too many Christians live their life and their walk this way. It's about what God owes them. It's about what God owes them. I think if you're honest... Many of you in this room, you've got a list of things 
that you feel like you are entitled to from God. And sometimes the, the struggles in our walk is because God doesn't give us the things that we think we are entitled to, that God should give us. God owes me. He owes me a promotion at work. He owes me admission to the right college. He owes me a comfortable and pleasurable life. We're living to what I call a what-I-can-get Christianity. But here's the reality. Jesus is not interested in being your or my vending machine. And as a matter of fact, he rebuked people for this. Go over to John chapter 6. I want you to see this. John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Let me get over there myself. John chapter 6 and verse 26. Jesus answers them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. <laughs> verse 27. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give you, for him that for him hath God the Father sealed. And so Jesus calls them out. He says, you're coming to me not because you saw the miracles. Now, why would the miracles be different? Because, see, the miracles were done in demonstration of his doctrine and his truth. The miracles were done in demonstration of his doctrine and his truth. And he says, you're not coming to me for truth. You're coming to me because you want a hamburger. That's why you're coming to me. You want your bellies filled. And that's the problem. It's a what I can get Christianity. And we do it because we think God owes us. And God sees that. But you know what? If you read further down in the passage, what you find is that Christ had many hard things to tell them. He had many hard things to tell them. And his response basically served as a way to sort of weed out the ones that were there for the wrong reasons. He was weeding out the ones that were there for the wrong reason. So much so till you get down to John 666. John chapter 6 and verse 66. And this is the outcome. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. They weren't getting what they expected. They weren't getting what they wanted. But you know what? Jesus was never one that was overly concerned with numbers. He always wanted quality over quantity. Always. And that has to be our approach in discipleship. That has to be our approach in discipleship. I'd rather disciple one or two people that are sold out for the Lord than have 500 lukewarm guys that aren't making a difference for anything. Because you get two people that are sold out and, and, and God will... God will work in their life. You can move mountains with just those two people. And that's what, God, that's what God is looking for in your life. So question, are you someone that Jesus is going to have to weed out? Are you someone that Jesus is going to have to weed out? Because here is the reality of the Christian walk. It does get harder. It does get harder. There's joy. There's peace. 
You know, there, there, there's a lot of things that, that a blessing from following Christ, but it does get harder. And the climb gets steeper. And Christ is like, are you still in it? It's harder now. You're not getting what you want. Are you still in it? Are you going to stay with me? So are you one that, that, that Jesus is going to have to weed out? Don't be that person. Don't be that one. I'm in it no matter what. I know Job said it right. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Where are those disciples? Where are those people at? So let me ask you a question. What is the power of God producing in your life? What is the power of God producing in your life? And the reason I ask that is because, you know, we always tend to think about the power of God in the context of what we gain from it, right? Like this, the power of God is on display, God's mighty power, and I got that car financed at a low interest rate. Praise the Lord. Amen. <laughs> Hallelujah. I got the car I wanted. He worked mightily in my life, right? I got that scholarship. And, and you know, some of those things can be good, although, by the way, you want to stay away from car payments. That's, that's just, you know. Curse of the middle class. Just just a little piece of Dave Ramsey for you. Stay away from car payments. Don't care how low the interest rate is. Um, okay, so Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. Go over to Colossians chapter 1. The Bible has, uh, God has a different perspective on what his power should manifest in your life. So let's look at this. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. It says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all understanding, in, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might, might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now here it is, verse 11. Strengthened with all might. According to his glorious power, that is awesome. What does it produce? Unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. What? God's mighty power in my life produces patience and long-suffering, the ability to suffer long with joyfulness. I didn't expect that. Because if it's producing patience, what does that mean? It means that there's something that you want that you're not getting. Something that you want that you're not getting, but God's mighty power produces patience in your life. And not only that, long-suffering with joyfulness. God's mighty power producing the ability for you to suffer long and be joyous about it. We don't ask for that power too much, do we? That doesn't even sound appealing. When was the last time you fasted for that, right? Patience and the ability to suffer long. How about we just skip that lesson <laughs> and we move to the lesson on spiritual gifts? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, like, that's what I get, right? That's great. Uh, but that's what God's power is supposed to produce in our life. So you've got to ask yourself, if this isn't being manifested in your life, is God's power working in your life? And so my prayer 
is that God would deliver us from comfortable Christianity. Deliver us from comfortable Christianity. Where you can't get anything done because comfort is the chief pursuit. You can't get anything done trying to be comfortable. You can't even study for your exams if your chief goal is to be comfortable. Right? Like how many times, I know this is me, sometimes I'm like, okay, I got to get some studying done, but I'm tired. So you know what? I need to be comfortable. So I'm just going to sit in the bed, uh, sit up in the bed with the pillow here. And so I get in the bed and I'm like, okay, I'm co- well, I'm not as comfortable as I need to be. So I, I'm going I'm to do this. And, and, then, and then what happens? You sleep. You ain't worth two dead flies. What's wrong with you? And so comfortable Christianity where you are, you're effective to accomplish nothing. And so in the Christian walk, you've got to be willing to be inconvenienced. You've got to be willing to be uncomfortable in order to get anything done. Comfort cannot be your chief pursuit. We ought rather to understand what Romans chapter 12 is. Verse 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. Wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. That's your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God owes us nothing, but we owe owe God everything. And following the Lord is worth being uncomfortable. It's worth suffering long. It's worth not getting the things that you want. And I know for in this in this age group, I just I'm just gonna name off a few things that I see will always just with this age group, people get derailed. You get derailed because you don't have the person that you want. And you're pursuing love, and it's out of God's timing. And you ought rather to come to the place where you can say, you know what? If it's just me and Christ, that's all it ever has to be. If it's just me and Christ, that's all it ever has to be. God is enough. God is enough. You've got to come to the place where you understand that and you truly believe it with every fiber of your being that Christ is enough. And when you can come to that place where Christ is enough, then if God brings someone else in your life, great. But if not, that's okay. Because it's not going to stop me from moving forward in serving the Lord with everything that I have. Because I'm just a pilgrim here. I'm just a pilgrim. I'm just passing through. My home's in heaven. But another area is in pursuit of that career. The career. The accomplishments. And what does it, what does it, where does that end up? You know, I I love reading I'm a business junkie, so I love reading about like you know CEOs and their you know, biographies and what they accomplish. But you know, one common thing that I hear from, especially from the CEOs that accomplished a lot, like um, CEO of Pepsi, her name is Indra Nuri, it's, it's hard to pronounce. But anyway, um, 
from a business standpoint, really wise woman. Just you could watch YouTube videos about her. But one of the things that she talks about when they asked her, um, you know, about her family life, she's always very clear that she's like, you know what, I I haven't been a good mom. I can't say that. I, how can you be CEO of a a global corporation, multi billion dollar corporation? That that there's a price tag to that. And she's like, I can't say that my kids would say that. Uh, I'm a good mother. I'm never there. She's always traveling. And so there, you get to the end of your life. My point is, if, if career is your passion and that's your pursuit, what always happens is that you get at the end of your life and you recognize that you've missed out on the best stuff. The best stuff are the relationships that God gives you, the people that you can invest in. That's what, that's what you need to be doing. And I've shared this story with, with many of you. I was, there was a time when I was working for a previous company. I was, uh, I was 22. I started as a district manager. I got promoted to regional director, and I was so excited about that. Uh, and part of what um, I did was, it was I was managing a large territory. So I would fly out on Tuesdays, fly out to whatever city I was going to, and fly back in on Thursdays or Friday. I did that for six months. Uh, was never here. Couldn't be here. It was just That was what the job required. And then, you know, um, Economy, stock market crashed, uh, and they end up having to like downsize, and, and I got demoted back to district manager because they didn't have enough revenues, and I was shattered. I was shattered, and I didn't have the maturity to recognize that that was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. It was the best thing that could have ever happened to me because what are you doing three or four days of the week when you're in another city? You're in hotels every night. So like there's like you there's nothing there. It's empty. I love going to malls and shopping, but you going by yourself, you know, and like it's just it's empty. And and I couldn't recognize the blessing that it was that I got demoted because what was amazing about it was that even though they demoted me, they let me keep my salary as a regional director. It had nothing to do with me. It was just a company needed to downsize. And so I got put back as a district manager, but I kept my salary. And I was bitter. <laughs> I could not have been more angry. I would have rather, I would have rather taken a pay cut and kept my position. That's where my mind was, because I was just I was on this career track, and I had stuff that I was going to do, and I was going to be vice president. You know, like I had lined out, and I was doing it. Uh, and to have, and to, but God was like, no, you're, you're, no. And looking back on that, it was the best thing that could have happened to me, because I love being here. Like, I love being with God's people, and I hate traveling now. Don't ask me to go anywhere. I don't want to go. <laughs> I want to be here. I want to spend time with my friends. I want to spend time with my family. That's what it's about. And so my point is, don't let that get you off track. Don't let your career get you off track. Yeah, it's okay to have a good job and to have a good salary to take care of your family, but you got to remember what is most important. And the relationships, I believe I am rich, not because of how much money I have, but because of the relationships I have with people and spending time with those people. So, you know, pursuing this, the, 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 the person that you, you want or the career that you want, don't let those things get you off track. Because what you will find is that if you're a disciple of Christ, Christ is going to, he's going to, at some point, he's going to adjust that. And it may be abrupt when it happens, right? There's no, like, you don't just warm up to it. No, they just brought me to an office and was like, well, after today, um, <laughs> no, you're not going to be a regional director. I mean, like, it was just like that. 
Um, and so he will, he will get you, he will move you to keep you where you need to be. And what you need to do is you have to adjust your expectations. And I've learned to take stuff like that of the Lord now. Jobs, changes like that of the Lord. God is keeping you, keeping you from yourself. Praise the Lord. I love it when he does it now. Keep me from me. Consider this, 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. I've got to remind myself of this all the time, that I'm supposed to endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Because if you look at, at, at popular Christianity, that is not the message of popular Christianity. Popular Christianity is living your best life now. It's, it's being happy, being comfortable, uh, things being convenient. But that is not what God called us to. It's not what God called us to. And so my point would be, if you're in a place to where uh, maybe you are suffering, I know the, 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 the natural tendency is to always act as in such a way as to stop the suffering, right? To move out of that. But did you ever consider that God wants you there? And that the power of God manifested in your life means what? That you have the ability to do what? To suffer along. To go through it. And what it produces in you is far more valuable. What it produces in you is far more valuable. So I wish we could learn this. Now let's go back and look at verse 5. Go back over to Romans. So now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So in order to qualify for justification, what do you have to be? Believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. In order to qualify for justification, You've got to be ungodly. That doesn't mean go out and sin. That just means recognize where you are. Recognize where you are. It's kind of like when, when Christ um, said, they that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. You've got to recognize there's something wrong. If you're going to, if you're going to be justified, you've got to recognize you're ungodly first. So Christ expects you to acknowledge your need. You've got to be honest with yourself about where you are. You've got to be honest with yourself. And this is something that, that I love about Jesus in the Gospels. Um, you know, he, he's not going to force anybody to be healed. He's not going to force anybody to be healed. Over in John chapter 5, it says a certain man, verse 5, a certain man was there which had an infirmity 30 and 8 years. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been there a long time in that case, he said unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? Wilt thou be made whole? Well, you've got to acknowledge that you have a need to be made whole, right? In order to answer in the affirmative, yes, you've got to understand the need that's there. Over in Luke chapter 18, verse 40, And Jesus stood and commanded him to be brought unto him. And when he was come near, he asked him, this is Luke chapter 18, verse 41, saying, what wilt thou that I shall do unto thee? He said, 
Lord, that I may receive my sight. What do you want? What are you asking me for? What do you need? And then Jesus said unto him, receive thy sight. Thy faith hath saved thee. Thy faith hath saved thee. And so this morning, there may be some of you here that are struggling with some heavy things. Maybe even things you don't want anyone to know about. And I want to challenge you to acknowledge it and confess it. I want to challenge you to acknowledge it and confess it. Jesus can't help you if you won't first own it. If you won't own it and just say, this is what I need, this is what I'm dealing with, Jesus can't help you. You've got to be willing to confess it. And when you confess it, don't try to make it pretty, don't try to clean it up. This is what it is. When do we come to a point to where we stop pretending and we're just real with each other? We're all skin. We all have problems. We all got stuff we don't want everybody to know about, but there should be some people that know about it. There should be some people that know about it. This is what I'm struggling with. I need help. And you know what? This is so different from what other religions teach. I know of religions that will teach that as long as it's kept quiet and as long as no one else knows about it, it's not hurting anyone. It's just between you and God. You should keep it to yourself. But what does the word of God say? A little leaven leavens a whole lot. That stuff is contagious. It is contagious. That thing that you're holding on to that nobody else knows about, that stuff gets passed on. It gets passed on. And so confession is the key. James 5.16, confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So this idea that you come to a place to where you're willing to acknowledge where you're at and you're willing to confess it. To say, this is what I'm struggling with. Help me. That's what Jesus is looking for. That's what he's looking for. Now, if you understand everything that we've just talked about. Verse 5, but unto him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. If you understand all of this, then verses 6 through 8 make perfect sense. Let's look at verses 6 through 8. Romans chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying... Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. So point number five, a blessed man is a man that is forgiven. A blessed man is a man that is forgiven. That word blessed can also be translated as happy. This is God's definition of a happy man. Some of you are here and you think that when you graduate from college, you're going to be happy. I can already tell you that's not the truth. Some of you think that when you get married, you're going to be happy. And with the amount of marriage counseling that goes on, I'm going to tell you right now, that show ain't the truth. Um, A blessed man, a happy man, is someone that's forgiven. That is forgiven. And why? Why would you be happy? Because you obtained something that you didn't deserve, something that you couldn't earn, but something that you desperately needed. 
who needed forgiveness. Now, what does impute mean? Because they're, they're, Paul's you know, diving back in and he's using some of that, that legal terminology, right? Impute is righteousness. So get this down. This isn't on the, uh, in the PowerPoint. Uh, get this down. Definition of impute. It means to credit to your account. That's what that means. To credit to your account. That's what impute means. And so, the blessedness of man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. So what David is saying is that this blessed man, God credits to his account righteousness. God adds that to the account, and what he doesn't add is the sin. He imputes righteousness and not the sin. Talk about a good deal. That's the best deal possible. You couldn't negotiate a better deal. We are making America great again with this message. <laughs> this is a great deal. It's a great deal. I'm going to credit to your account righteousness and not credit to your account sin that you're responsible for. There's not a better deal. And I'm going to do it on behalf of my son that paid the price. Psalm 32, a psalm of David. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. Verse 5, 32 verse 5, he says, I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin, Selah. You can rest there. God is willing to forgive if you're willing to confess, if you're willing to acknowledge your sin. Why do people refuse his offer? Why would someone refuse that? Forgiveness. Real quick, I know we need to, need to wind it up, but okay, Acts chapter 13. We're, we're almost at the end. Acts chapter 13, but I think it's, it's important to understand God's position on why people refuse forgiveness. Seems like a great offer. Acts chapter 13, verse 39. Uh, start in verse 38. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, verse 40, lest thou come upon you which is spoken in the prophets. Here it is, verse 41. What's the reason? Why do people not take forgiveness? Behold, ye despisers, and wander and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. People reject forgiveness because they despise God's word. God said, that's the real reason. You despise it. You despise it. And the best you can do, if the best you can do in response to God's offer of forgiveness through Christ is to despise it, then this passage tells you what the outcome is. You're going to perish. You will perish. You'll perish because you don't have righteousness through Christ and your so-called good works are not good enough. 
Now, here's the reality. How many of you know if God actually, okay, if God actually took us up on what the, the world's perspective on good works is, that's a bad deal, right? If it's the actual the weight thing where it's like, oh, my good works on this side, my, my bad things on this side. How many of you know that's a bad deal? You should, you, that, should, that should be, it should be obvious to you because why? You actually have to make effort to do good things. You don't have to put forth any effort to do bad things. You don't have to teach a child how to lie. They just do that automatically. You have to train a child to be honest. If you're just walking down the street, if you're not making the decision to focus your mind on the things of Christ, where does your mind go? The gutter, right? Like, it, 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 in your default mode, all you can do is sin. And so that's not something that I want. That would not be an offer that I would take, my good works outweighing my bad works, because I already know that's not going to go favorably for me. It's not going to go favorably for anybody. Good works outweighing your bad works. No. But what I want you to understand, forgiveness being the best possible solution. But you know what? We don't, it's not just forgiveness that we despise. It's not just limited to God's offer of salvation. Anytime you reject God's word, it's because you're despising it. It's because you're despising it. And you say, oh, no, it's not. Oh, yes, it is. Because what did Jesus say? If you love my... If you love me, what? Keep my commandments, right? If you love me, keep my commandments. And what I love about God's word is how it brings us into focus. God says the blessed man, the happy man, is one who is forgiven. What does that mean? It means no more guilt. It means no more shame. It means we're forgiven. That's the blessed man. That's the happy man. So let's move to this last section and then we're going to we're going to close. Romans chapter 4. Verses 9 through 12. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only? All right, so we're talking about Abraham, remember? And and how did so Abraham is obviously this blessed man. He obtained righteousness from God through faith, but then Paul is like Paul's going to put a seal on it just to make sure it's clear. He says, "Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only or upon the uncircumcision also. For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. And the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. See, here's the reality. When, did, when exactly did Abraham obtain forgiveness? That was Genesis chapter 15. Verse 6, and he believed the Lord and it was counted to him for righteousness. When was Abraham circumcised? That's Genesis chapter 17. That's at least 15 years later. Abraham was circumcised in Genesis 17 after Ishmael was born. But he believed the Lord in verse in chapter 15 before Ishmael was born. Abraham was not circumcised, and he had done nothing to deserve it because we just we've already seen how he was an idolater. He had done nothing to deserve it. And that's the point of verses 11 and 12. 
It happened with him being uncircumcised that he might believe, be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. Righteousness is available to everyone, even if you're not circumcised, because it's by faith. Point number six, and then we're going to wrap it up. Faith is the only requirement to have the righteousness of Christ. Faith is the only requirement. Nothing more, nothing less. Faith in the finished work of Christ. Romans chapter 3, verse 26. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just, and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is the boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but the law of faith. Romans 3.28. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. This was true of Abraham, and it has to be true of you and me too. You don't obtain justification by your works. Let's go ahead and have the band come up. Um, so, in closing, there are three groups of people that I just kind of want to address at the end here. Um, group number one, some of you think you're saved and you're not. Some of you think you're saved and you're not. Because you haven't believed and confessed Christ. You've been going through the motions. And in that, if that's you, I want to invite you to come forward and let someone pray with you. And still others of you, there's some here, you know you're not saved, but you want forgiveness. You want that offer of forgiveness. You need to turn to Christ. And if that's you, I want you to come forward. And still others of you, there are those of you that are here that you do know Christ. You do know Christ, but you know what? There's things in your life that you know you need to confess, that you know you need accountability with, that you need to put out there before the Lord so that Christ can help you with. And so go ahead and stand. And I'm going to pray, and we're going to um, continue in worship. But if you, need to, if you need someone to pray with you, I want you to come forward. I'll pray with you, or we'll get someone to pray with you. But understanding that justification is by faith and that's what needs to happen in our life and, and, and that step forward uh, could be the, the, the faith that's necessary. And so let's pray. Heavenly Father, just pray that you'd help us to move forward in faith wherever we're at, Lord, for those that need Christ.